Energy policy is still in the news and big time because of the double whammy of energy's contribution to inflation and because of the ongoing geopolitical fallout from world dependencies on Russian energy. It's never been more important, really, to understand the fundamentals of energy and to deal honestly with immutable realities, but a lot of people don't. So in this podcast of The Last Optimist, we'll talk about some underlying facts, in fact, and especially some of the key features of the physics of energy, not too much physics, but the physics of energy. In other words, the realities that help separate what's hype or just wishful thinking, even magical thinking from what's possible, what we're talking about when it comes to the geopolitical delinking of energy trade dependencies with Russia, or what can really happen with respect to aspirational environmental goals. The importance of getting it right, you'd think, is beyond obvious. But the policy decisions of recent decades have led us directly to the current episode of energy-driven inflation and to the geopolitical mess that Europe finds itself in with regard to Russia. We've talked about energy a lot in the previous podcasts, of course, and I'm devoting this episode to answering the top six questions we've received about our observations, the ones I've made earlier. Questions that are important, I think, and that illuminate what people are thinking, what they think they know, and what they think they've been told about energy. But before answering those top six questions, I'm gonna start by highlighting some basic ideas about the nature of energy. Then I'll turn to a very brief summary of the state of play, uh, where we are with energy. Some of the latter I've covered in earlier podcasts, but it's important to have the key facts in mind. It helps frame where we are, where we can go, or where we can't easily go. And then I'll turn to brief answers for each of the top six questions. So first, let's consider the very basic context of what we're talking about when we're talking about energy. So I'm referring to ideas articulated by one of the great maybe one of the greatest physicists, uh, certainly in the group of great physicists of the 20th century, that's Richard Feynman. Feynman, for those of you who don't recognize his name, was a brilliant and revered professor of physics at Caltech. Most people became familiar with him when he was a member of the commission that tried to get to the root cause of that horrible Challenger space shuttle disaster way back in 1986, when Feynman brilliantly, and with his kind of famous showmanship, identified and demonstrated on television the root cause of that disaster. A book of his uh, lectures, a collection of his lectures from Caltech, is to this day one of the most cherished and clear expositions of basic physics principles. It's a book, by the way, a lot of people who aren't physicists uh, read and find helpful and useful. It's called Feynman Lectures, Red Book. So getting back to our subject, it's Feynman who famously said that scientists really have no idea what energy is. He explained that by using a practical observation about the physics of energy and how energy is always conserved. By that, it's not just a a word, uh, conserved. This is not an idea. Energy in all its forms uh, is always conserved. The total quantity of energy in a system is always the same. It's a law of physics. For example, the energy that comes from burning wood can't be more than the potential energy that exists before it's burned It's present in the chemical bonds in the wood and the similar uh, energy bonds involved with oxygen molecules. And further, that converting energy from one form 
where it's not particularly useful, say water at the top of a hill, the potential energy in water sitting at the top of a hill, when that energy becomes useful by running down the hill and making electricity by turning machines uh, that produce kilowatt hours, those conversions everywhere and always actually consume energy themselves. The kind of reality means in effect that there's, to use a non-physics term, there's no free lunch in the universe we live in. An awful lot of energy schemes though, and policy proposals and aspirational assertions about our potential energy future are really unfortunately based on, even if it's unintentional, the assumption that there's kind of free lunch out there somewhere, somehow. Anyway, the key fact that I wanna point out that Feynman illustrated in his famous lecture about energy is that scientists use exactly, this, exactly the same units to measure energy in every form at every step in the conversion of potential to useful energy. So he pointed out that, the, for example, the potential energy in food that you eat can be converted by the magical biological machinery into biochemical energy that's then used to animate your muscles, creating mechanical energy to propel, say, a bicycle that then creates inertial energy as well as a lot, as well as a lot of so-called waste heat energy. And then when you hit a fence, all that energy is dissipated as mechanical energy, again, altering, in fact, destroying or damaging physical things, you know, your bones, the fence that you hit, and more heat energy. Through that whole trajectory, there's never any increase or loss in the overall quantities of energy involved. And what's particularly confusing is that every single form of that energy, every single kind of energy in that process I just described is measured with exactly the same units. So this would be sort of kind of the equivalent of confusingly measuring say money, all forms of money by its weight. So, you know, a pound of dollar bills or a pound of gold or a pound of wheat you wanna sell or a pound of USB sticks that contain your Bitcoin Bitcoin codes. Obviously, you could measure those all in pounds. It wouldn't tell you very much. A lot of the problems we're having in public policy circles begin with that kind of fundamental misunderstanding of how energy really works and how we measure it, and how it can be converted, and how it can be stored, how it can be traded. That's that's a. I'll just say it's a fundamental. It's a fundamental problem. It pops up all the time. And regarding the essential nature of energy, which you know. I have to digress briefly to illustrate the truism that without energy, we'd have nothing. All of civilization, all of life, the universe, in fact, is only possible because of energy. And when we realize that energy is essential, not just in sort of philosophical or basic physics sense, but it's essential to everything that society needs, it tells you why we get energy-driven inflation. That's what's going on right now. If you increase the costs of energy inputs, say by 200%, to 500%. And those are the kinds of price hikes we're seeing right now for oil, and coal, and natural gas. Then you get energy-driven inflation, core inflation in everything, how things are moved and made and you know, delivered and operated. I mean, consider wheat, which as I speak is I think up about 60%, well, 60% more expensive per bushel compared to less than a year ago. Over half of that cost hike is because of the higher cost of natural gas. Why? Well, we use natural gas to, uh, to make nitrogen fertilizer. In fact, about three-fourths of the cost to make the fertilizer is the cost of natural gas. And wheat 
is grown by using fertilizer. In fact, majority of the cost increase in the price of wheat has come from the increased cost of fertilizer. There was a additional uncertainty in the wheat pricing because Ukraine and Russia produce so much wheat and the world is worried and some of those supplies will be taken away. But the system was already stressed and prices were already up almost 60% because of natural gas prices. Well, put differently, maybe simply, the cost of the bread in your sandwich is directly and dramatically linked to the cost of natural gas. So in the comfortably wealthy countries, that's not such a big deal, I guess. But in places like Kenya, where bread prices have jumped 40% already, it matters a lot. In much of the world, natural gas prices go up, so do coal prices, because markets switch from gas to coal. That's particularly true in India and China and Pakistan, a lot of the world. Uh, And that cost increases the cost of electricity, which inflates the costs of steel and aluminum, where a lot of it's made. And in steel, steel and aluminum are the world's most commonly used metals. The costs of both those metals have soared recently, and that also causes core inflation. By the way, aluminum is particularly important for electric vehicles. It's used to make the frames for the batteries in the car because we have to offset the weight penalty of the battery pack. As I've said in uh, some earlier episodes, the typical EV battery in a car weighs 1,000 pounds And that's to replace about 100 pounds or so of gasoline. So you need to use a lot of aluminum to lightweight the vehicle as much as possible. And just repeating this sort of fundamental embodied energy reality of the world, the energy used to make 1,000 pounds of aluminum is enough to drive a car, one car, for an entire year. So that gives you a sense of of the, the core inflation problems that are going on. It takes energy to make everything, not just metals and food, but paper and plastic and pharmaceuticals. In fact, America's pharmaceutical sector uses more energy than our country's semiconductor industry. Though some of the lower energy use in semiconductors in America is because we've sort of offshored our semiconductor manufacturing by making it hard to build factories, but we'll bring them back. But the global plans to build more semiconductor factories, just the increased number of factories now planned will use as much electricity as the country of Denmark. Let me put it in more bite-sized terms. It takes the energy equivalent of about a barrel of oil to manufacture $1,000 worth of computers. So energy matters. And it takes the energy equivalent of about a barrel of oil to manufacture, it turns out, about $1,000 worth of car. The world's going to produce trillions of dollars more of both for a very long time. Use more energy. If you raise the price of energy, the price of those products can and will go up. By the way, speaking of things, silicon and digital and the energy it takes, it takes a lot of energy to operate the cloud itself. As I pointed out in parts of my book, The Cloud Revolution, uh, the world's building data centers, which are at the core of the cloud, the, sort of the giant warehouse scale computers, if you like, that are the, the sort of the beating heart of the giant cloud infrastructure. We're building those out at the rate of tens of millions of square feet of data centers a year. To give you a sense, again, of embodied energy, each square foot of a data center uses as much electricity as 20 Tesla cars do a year. That explains why, if you didn't know, 
doing things like listening to podcasts or doing virtual meetings on Zoom uses a lot more energy than you'd think. In fact, every thousand Zoom minutes, which seems like a lot, but it really adds up, you know, especially lately. Every thousand Zoom minutes uses about as much energy as driving 10 miles in a car. The company Zoom reports the utilization for their platform, and they're only one, as you know. The utilization of their platform is now running at over 3 trillion Zoom minutes per year. So I'm, or in bite-sized terms, again, taking into account the entire sort of hidden ecosystem of uh, computing, the cloud, telecommunications, the energy used each year by your single smartphone is about the same energy used each year by the refrigerator in your kitchen. Uh, there's a lot of examples like this. I could, I could give you dozens, but literally everything that exists around you has embodied energy. Everything you do has embodied energy. But the two overarching realities of uh, is that the kinds of products and the services that will make life more comfortable, more interesting, create more wealth in the future, will all involve consuming energy and more of it. Or put it in sort of a, um, a rule of thumb or a, a truism, that innovators are always finding far more ways, they always invent more new ways, new products and services to consume energy than they can invent new ways to produce energy. So this leads me directly to, uh, let's frame the macro energy situation we're in now before turning to the top six questions. Again, the framing is important because it leads directly to the questions. So let's consider briefly the state of play or the state of reality with regards to global energy. Then I'll get to the six questions, the top six questions. The world today uses as much energy every month as was consumed in an entire year back in 1920. That's a um, huge growth. That's a 300% greater growth in energy demand that could be explained by the greater size of the population. Or put differently, far more of the increase of energy demand comes from the fact that wealth has gotten greater per capita than explained by the population growing. And for the future, increasing in increases in prosperity, increases in comfort and safety, conveniences, entertainment. Those would be the primary drivers, primary driving force for more energy demand, far more than just population growth, although the latter counts. So understanding how much economic growth is yet to come tells you a lot more about how much more energy demand is gonna come. And that's, as I said before, that's really the focus of my book, The Cloud Revolution. But then enough about my book go back to where the world's going in terms of energy demand. So assuming an asteroid doesn't hit the earth and we don't follow dinosaurs into oblivion or that we don't do the equivalent to ourselves with a nuclear war, God forbid, then in the coming two decades, the world will likely see, I'll give you a few examples, 3000 billion more passenger air miles flown each year or 3,000 billion more watt hours of electricity consumed a year to cool homes, or at least 3,000 billion more megabytes per year of data traffic on the global cloud. All of those things and all the associated housing and the food and entertainments in a bigger and wealthier global population will increase energy demand. And it'll increase energy demand by an amount equal to adding about two more United States worth of demand over the next couple of decades. 
Meanwhile, the world gets 84% of all its energy from hydrocarbons, the oil, coal, and natural gas. As I've said before, that share was 86% two decades ago. So it's gone down two percentage points over 20 years after myriad government mandates and regulations and spending, spending of well over $5 trillion to cut dependence on hydrocarbons. So we are today with a lot more wind and solar, but collectively they still provide only a few percentage points of world energy. In fact, um, just by the way, burning wood globally still supplies far more energy than the solar photovoltaic modules and solar farms. And as I've discussed in previous episodes, let's say trying to increase by say tenfold the share of global energy from wind and solar from its few percent share today, or increasing by tenfold the share of vehicles on the road that have batteries, electric vehicles from today's roughly 1%. The most important fact to keep in mind is that will lead to history's biggest increase in mining. That's because, and I'll spend more time on this in future podcasts, wind, solar, and electric cars require the mining and use of at least 10 times, that's a thousand percent more minerals and metals to deliver the same unit of energy service to society compared to using hydrocarbons. In fact, despite wind and solar and electric vehicles still occupying a very small share of the energy landscape, it is true though that their growth rates have been extraordinary. You know, you get very fast growth rates off, to, off a, a small starting point, but those are important. There's been a doubling in just the past couple of years in the number of wind turbines and solar modules, a doubling in the number of EV built, EVs built and sold on the world's road in just the last 18 months. That's a lot of growth, and it creates a lot of demand for everyday metals, metals that are used for a lot of other things, you know, things like copper and nickel and aluminum, not just the more exotic, specific metals like lithium and cobalt that you hear a lot about. The effect of this new demand, this new increase in demand in commodity markets and mining uh, in an in a, in a, in a industrial sector that has a very limited ability to expand rapidly has been you shouldn't be surprised to learn to see the price of those metals inflate to soar. Aluminum is trading at a 30-year high. Copper and nickel prices have jumped over 200% just the last 18 months. And consequently, manufacturers have had to increase, have announced increases in the sales price of their EVs, both you know, BYD, which is China's biggest electric vehicle maker, and Tesla have announced in recent weeks price hikes for their cars because of commodity inflation. And solar modules themselves that go into making solar farms, solar power, the cost of those uh, are up about 50% in the past couple of years. And wind turbines are forecast to increase in cost by 25% next year, or this year, rather. I mean, this is all because of commodity inflation. These kinds of realities tell you really just two things. It's sort of the two key takeaways. One is about just how hard it is to change, not add to, but change how civilization's powered. Over all history, energy sources, every new energy source that's been brought into use has sort of added to, not replaced previous energy sources. As I said, we still, we're still burning a lot of wood. The pie gets bigger, so the shares change, but the absolute quantity of energy sources used keeps expanding. It's, it's a, to use the, the phrase, made famous by a former president, it's really on all of the above. Society wants to use everything they can because we demand so much energy. The other truth 
is that there's a lot of inflation in pushing in pushing energy uh, sources asymmetrically, if you like, by the governments putting their finger on markets. So at a time when the world economy is just now essentially recovering from the great lockdowns with more travel starting to happen, more goods purchased after these you know two years of, of a self-induced recession, inflation has been made worse by the combination of policies that are you'd have to say hostile to expanding oil and gas production. So it makes it more expensive. And also policies that have artificially pushed through subsidies and mandates, the greater use of mineral intensive energy sources like electric cars and wind and solar that's had an inflationary effect on the minerals that I just described. And therefore an inflationary effect on everything else that's made from those same metals and minerals. So, this brings me then to the top six questions that uh, we've received about the energy ideas and observations uh, in these podcasts. The first question is, uh, is about price cycles from mineral commodities like copper and aluminum. And the question really is, shouldn't we expect that the market, since it's cyclical, will, you know, this inflationary cycle will end just as, as it has in the past, and we'll just get back to cheap Minerals, cheap copper, cheap aluminum. That you know, it's a cycle after all. And it won't, it's not going to be long before miners respond to the higher prices and create new supplies like they have in the past, and then the prices come back down. Shouldn't we expect that to happen? And of course, that if that happened, that would make these material-intensive green machines cheaper at some point. Of course, the answer to that, of course, yes, we should expect that to happen. I mean, commodities are cyclical. All commodities are cyclical. All of them at price hikes that are followed by price crashes. And the earth has lots of minerals, but the key issue is timing. <laughs> How long does the cycle last? And that's what matters to economies, it's what, it's what matters to citizens, and you can bet it matters to politicians, is you don't wanna be trying to run for reelection. Uh, it's on your watch when the, you're on the up cycle, and if the up cycle for prices lasts a long time. Here's what we know, we know that as of today, the world's miners are not planning to build, they're not building enough new mining capacity to meet the demand that will come from the mandates to do lots more green energy, not even close. So as the demand for the minerals keeps rising because governments keep requiring use of more minerals or mandating or subsidizing the use of more of those minerals to build more green machines, the prices will keep going up. And they'll keep going up for as long as the, the mandates last. And it'll be a vicious cycle because then if you want to subsidize the higher costs, you push more demand, which will push more prices because the supply can't respond fast enough. It has increased production from mines can't respond fast enough. In fact, at the end of last year, International Monetary Fund put out an analysis on global mineral inflation, commodity underlying sort of core inflation from mining and minerals. And they, they pointed out the obvious in you know, a detailed mathematical, economic, econometric analysis that the current path for minerals demands is on track to create not the, one of the highest uh, inflationary periods for metals and minerals, but more importantly, one of the longest lasting one, one that they point out could last for a decade. That's in political terms and economic terms, 
a very destructive amount of time to have core commodity inflation. So could the cycle take us back down? Yeah, it will eventually there'll be more supply. What will probably happen first is not more supply, but less demand or put differently, peak subsidies will come first. Peak mandates, the governments will be forced to stop pushing markets towards using more of what can't be produced quickly enough, which are the so-called green energy minerals. Question two then is the one I hear a lot, which is when it comes to green machines, especially the need to build lots of batteries to moderate the cyclicality of wind and sun, if we use lots of them, is why not just build more transmission lines? We can take the pressure off building mineral intensive battery farms. And believe me, battery farms, the scale needed to moderate electric grids will be big at scales that are almost unimaginable, huge gigatons of materials required. So the solution, why not just build more transmission lines, long transmission lines? Because as the proponents of that view would say, it's always windy or sunny somewhere. So set aside the operational risks of building lots of really long transmission lines and their costs. And by the way, moving energy really long distances by wires is about twice as expensive as moving energy in pipelines. I mean, if that weren't true, there would be far fewer pipelines in the world and far more transmission lines. And in fact, it is true. But anyway, the key claim that we don't need too many batteries, these mineral intensive batteries is that we can build more transmission lines. So why not do that? Because it's, again, to repeat, always windy or sunny somewhere. The key claim is not true. It's at least not on on the North American or the European continent. It's not always sunny or windy somewhere. The meteorological records show that there there are long periods up to a day or several days that happen frequently when an entire continent, European continent, United States, North America, the entire continent is under cloud cover and becalmed at the same time. These are, these are sort of now called droughts, like wind droughts or solar droughts, and they happen frequently. That's what's caused all the trouble in Europe, the European electricity markets last fall when vast areas of the north, northern Europe and offshore England experienced a week-long wind drought, no wind essentially no wind for a week. That caused massive price hikes in electricity markets, economic effects of which were still still reverberating. So given the realities of the vicissitudes of wind and solar power, that sort of brings us back to the reality that you either depend on conventional power plants for most of your power, or you have to build lots and lots of batteries. And of course, the latter brings you back to the massive minerals challenge I've been talking about. It also brings me to the third most common question, Question three is usually framed as asking, why, why don't we just you know, step up the recycling requirements for all the green machines and batteries? And that would take a lot of pressure off of mining new materials. Of course, recycling does take pressure off mining new materials. That's why you recycle. Ideally, you find the recycled materials cost less than the new materials. And the idealized vision for recycling is, is to create a so-called circular economy. That idea, uh, shows up, especially recycling, is the top priority in almost every government policy to deal with the materials implications of pushing you know, green, green, green tech, green machines. Not to be you know, too simplistic in my response, but the idea of a circular economy based on what amounts to a goal of 100% recycling is a pipe dream. 
it's true that many materials, especially high value metals and plastics can be significantly recycled. But the challenges with recycling gigatons of waste from worn out clean tech machines, we can illustrate, illustrate it with the challenges we already have with dealing with 50 million tons each year of so-called e-waste that's generated globally from the worn out or outmoded digital devices, smartphones, computers, all those old and, and outmoded machines do contain lots of critical and rare minerals. They in fact contain tons of gold and silver. But as it stands today, despite a lot of hard work and efforts, the world's e-waste recycling rate is about 20%. It's very hard to break beyond that 20% level. The technical and economic challenges of recycling products is that they really contain just trace minerals in them, much as the raw ore rocks do. In fact, sometimes the trace mineral concentrations in the ore is greater than the trace mineral concentrations in the, in the machine waste. And it's that, that, that is the essence of why it's very hard to recycle many of these key minerals. It's cheaper and easier to get the key minerals from the, what's called the virgin ore. Recycling processes are often very labor intensive, which is why, the, why, by the way, a lot of it's pushed offshore in the pursuit of cheap labor. And sadly, sometimes child labor, in fact, and that's one of the challenges with that, uh, that whole sector. It's often a very hazardous process uh, to uh, recycle e-waste and electronic waste or any kind of waste. And that explains, by the way, why some metals are, you know, some of the common metals, which are pretty easy to recycle, are, are recycled at very high rates, like steel and aluminum. But most minerals, in fact, three dozen of the key minerals in the world, the global recycling rate is uh, less than 1%. And that's according to United Nations analysis, which obviously they're eager to see a lot more recycling. And so this brings us to uh, the fourth question in the top six questions that I get. And this is sort of given all the challenges, you know, this is how it's usually phrased in more or less, given all the challenges that we have with all these kinds of things, you know, with recycling and green machines and getting the technology to be better, what we should just launch a bunch of government moonshot programs. Why can't we just do moonshot programs to get better technology? The Apollo program, the moonshot, in fact, has become the favored phrase for every, every kind of government program directed at solving just about any kind of problem. It's um, pretty much overused, but it keeps getting used. So it's going to continue to get overused. I just saw it in today's news about doing a moonshot program for something to do with energy. But the problem with this um, phrase construction is that it represents a profound category error Putting a dozen humans on the moon, which is what the Apollo program did once, that's pretty amazing. It was incredibly expensive. But changing how society is fueled is the equivalent of putting everyone on the moon permanently. A really different challenge. As a practical matter, it's worth pointing out that the moonshot itself cost about $200 billion in today's inflation-adjusted dollars. And it took almost a decade. I mean, you remember the famous phrase within the, within the decade, it took pretty close to the decade. That's hardly a quick fix, even if it's a cheap political phrase. And coming back to the challenge of getting all the minerals we need to build all the machines for, let's say, moonshot energy programs, the world will have to spend something like $200 billion just to build enough new copper mines 
And then, then there's the money you're going to need to build the new nickel mines, aluminum and steel, manganese and cobalt and lithium mines. And each one of those categories will require capital investments in sort of the 50 to $200 billion range, again, each. And then getting any new mine into operation, never mind all of them, if you're lucky, it could take about a decade. So for the record, I just say again, no one is launching a single mining moonshot program, never mind multiple ones, even if it would help. So it's a, as they say, the canard, the moonshot analogies. The fifth in the top six questions is also about the pace of technology change. So put more of this in this framing. So why, why would we reasonably assume green technology will get better, much better and faster and surprise everyone the way that computing communications technologies took everyone by surprise with such rapid growth? and rapid declines in costs. Why wouldn't we expect that? In fact, the energy transition advocates, let's call them transitionists, they, they believe, they assert that a digital-like energy disruption is not just possible, but imminent. In fact, you know, we see phrases, in fact, one of forecasters say, we're gonna soon see, I quote, an apple of clean energy. Well, it's true that energy does have something to do with the fact that today's smartphones are much cheaper in fact, a single smartphone is thousands of times more powerful than a room-sized IBM mainframe from the 1980s. And the essential feature uh, is different, though. This is the, this is the category error problem. The progress that engineers have achieved in computing and communications comes from the collapse in the energy appetite of transistors. And you get that collapse in the energy appetite of a transistor by collapsing the size of the transistor. And then you can increase the number of the transistors per chip. And that happened at a rate of roughly twofold every two years. Yeah, compound effect, that kind of progress, known widely as Moore's Law, named after one of the Intel co-founders, Gordon Moore, that has been a disruptive revolution. In fact, the single iPhone, if it operated at the 1980 energy efficiency of computing, a single iPhone would require as much electricity is a Manhattan office building or a single data center at the center of the cloud, single one, and there are thousands, remember, a single one operating at a 1980 energy efficiency would use as much electricity as the entire US grid produces for the country. It was the efficiency gains in computing that led the world to have billions of smartphones and thousands of warehouse scale data centers. But this is the rub, a similar trans Information, a sort of digital-like acceleration how energy is produced, not how it's used for computers, how it's produced, isn't just unlikely, it's impossible. Analogizing information technology with energy technology is a fundamental category error. They entail different laws of physics. Logic engines don't produce the physical action or energy. They manipulate the idea of numbers, of ones and zeros. Silicon logic is rooted in simply knowing and storing the idea of a on or off, a one or a zero. But the energy needed to move a ton of people or heat a ton of steel or heat a ton of silicon or grow a ton of food, that's all determined by properties of nature. Its boundaries are set by laws of gravity, inertia, friction, and thermodynamics, not by clever software, not by 
knowing the state of the existence of a zero or one. Let me illustrate the difference between the physical energy world and information energy world with an example of how software can more efficiently, in energy terms, send pictures around, store them by using mathematical wizardry. And we do something like compress the information that constitutes a picture. These compression algorithms take the, quote, white space out, the, the replication of white space, unneeded white space between the pixels that represent the image. They take the white space away. They compress the image that reduces the energy needed to transport that information and increases the speed of the transport of the information. And it's really quite remarkable. But in the world of humans and objects with mass, there's no such thing as comparable compression, except in science fiction like Star Trek. Now, to illustrate just how silly the digital technology analogy is, uh, think of it this way. If, if in some alternative universe, the performance of silicon solar cells could follow the Moore's law for silicon logic, we'd end up with a single postage, postage stamp sized solar cell that could power an entire skyscraper. Or to use the analogy for batteries, if a battery could follow Moore's law, tech, tech kind of trajectory, a battery the size of a paperback book would end up costing a few cents and be able to power a jumbo jet across the Pacific. Such things uh, only happen in comic books. The analogy is, uh, well, flawed would be a polite way to call it. So this brings us to the, uh, the sixth and uh, final question in the set of top six questions that, that we get in reaction to commentary and lectures about energy. And it's, it's a question about nuclear, nuclear power, nuclear energy. I haven't said much about nuclear energy in previous podcasts, and I'll get to it in the future. It's a fascinating subject. I've spent a long time uh, earlier in my career involved in, in nuclear energy. Uh, but for those eager to use and find energy sources other than hydrocarbons, especially given the limits of solar and wind, I guess I, I, I would put the question this way, why not just build more nuclear plants? In fact, that's been asked of me many times. Well, I think we should, and a lot of them, and soon. <laughs> but look, nuclear fission is the only energy form that we know about, that we have invented, that we're aware of, that we can actually build machines around, that is profoundly and fundamentally superior to everything else in terms of the key metrics of how much land is needed and how much material is needed to produce a unit of energy service. It's really quite remarkable, it's profoundly different. I mean, put it this way, a pound of nuclear fuel in energy terms matches 60,000 pounds of oil or 100,000 pounds of coal or a million pounds of Tesla batteries. That's from one pound of nuclear fuel. Nuclear machines can run day and night with refueling needed once every couple of years and with some designs once every decade or more. So you, you can see why at the dawn of the atomic age, the forecasters were you know, practically giddy about the prospects with goofy things said like, you know, remember the famous phrase, nuclear energy would one day be too cheap to meter. By the way, some giddy solar forecasters have actually said solar energy is gonna to be too cheap to meter too. N nothing's ever free, by the way. Basic law of physics, <laughs> law of reality. Anyway. 
back to nuclear energy in, in the dawn of the atomic age in 1957. In fact, Ford engineers imagined cars that could go for years without refueling using a tiny reactor they hoped somebody else would invent one day. It's uh, a practical matter. The U.S. Air Force did take one enthusiastic step further beyond just imagining, and they spent a decade back then at about $7 billion trying to build a nuclear-powered aircraft. Well, they did that until President Kennedy, by the way, shut it down. He shut that program down. It was profoundly impractical. You could say he repurposed the, the money for the moonshot, which in my opinion was a far better investment. It turns out there are pretty daunting engineering challenges to democratizing the physics of nuclear fission. So here we are today with barely 10% of the world's electricity derived from splitting atoms. And this is we're coming up pretty soon on a century uh, since the world first figured out that we could perform what I might call artificial nuclear fission. Deploying nuclear energy at scale, it turns out, is in fact a really non-trivial engineering challenge, but it's not a physics challenge. The physics is well understood. There's actually some interesting um, lessons from the history of aviation relevant to nuclear energy. You can sort of think of today's nukes as the equivalent of, of the, the biggest aircraft, the Boeing 747 or Airbus 380 or its derivatives. I mean, the scale of, of such big, big machines is, we know why we build them at scale, but they have the biggest machines have limited utility. They fill a niche, but they have limited utility. I mean, jumbo, jumbo jets, the biggest aircraft, have never accounted for more than 10% of the global aviation fleet. In fact, the biggest ones, both the 747 and A380 are now being retired. It's the uh, still big, but far smaller and cheaper and more flexible designs of aircraft like the Boeing 737 and the Airbus A320. Those, those um, that scale, that size of aircraft constitutes about two thirds of the global, uh, the number of global uh, aircraft in commercial service. In, in, in nuclear energy terms, there are a lot of designs uh, now in, in development for what I would guess you could call Boeing 737 class power plants. Uh, getting those to markets, I think, uh, will take uh, sort of some political will and some sensible regulations. But if po politicians are really looking for inspirational next generation energy moonshots, nuclear power may be the only technology where that overused analogy just might make sense. Meanwhile, I mean, if we look to the tech community, the tech titans, and if they want to be, if they wanted to be truly visionary, rather than trading emissions credits for wind farms or for planting trees, you'd think they'd embrace research on next generation micro nuclear reactors. A few of them have, you know, tech titans and notably Bill Gates and Elon Musk have put their money to work in investments to startups for new generations of nuclear power plants, ones that would be sort of a hundredth the size of today's behemoths. The kind of scale that would be, interestingly enough, directly relevant to supplying always-on power to the massive data centers. And the world have thousands of data centers and thousands more are yet to be built with the ever-expanding cloud. That'd be a far better uh, path to, to uh, to take rather than trading pretend emissions credits for using windmills somewhere else, but while powering data centers, data centers locally with coal or natural gas, but I digress. Look, there, there was some tantalizing news in the British press earlier this month about the possibility that England might actually authorize the building of a fleet of uh, small nuclear power plants, kind of mini reactors. 
In this case, uh, the news was about one designed by a new company that has funding linked to uh, Elon Musk, which is kind of interesting and good for him. There's, there's really at least a dozen or more companies that are in various stages of development of next generation uh, designs for small nuclear reactors. I think that's probably the single most exciting uh, prospect for significant changes in how we power society than anything else that's going on uh, for the long term, that is. But most governments around the world aren't excited about that possibility, and most of them aren't putting very much money behind it. But the truth is, small reactors could be game changers. Uh, at the same time, the benefits of economies of scale means that there will always be a need for and room for in the market, for the, in fact, a pretty big room in the market for the very big reactors. And that's just because of the sheer quantity of energy that the world will need and needs now. And so good for France, by the way, for announcing this past February, I guess, uh, Macron announced a commitment to building another fleet of its next generation giant nuclear power plants. But there's one, uh, it's, it, you know, I have to say there's one unavoidable non-technical challenge with nuclear energy. And of course, it comes from the fact that most environmental groups outright oppose, if, if not having hostility towards nuclear energy. But if they're serious about a uh, so-called energy transition, there's just no possibility of that happening without supporting atomic power. By the way, scientists have known for a long time that nuclear energy is critical for any realistic vision of space travel or for space habitats or, or for putting colonies on Mars, for example, or mine, or mine sites on the moon. There's just really no way to travel and build at the distances of outer space. I mean, it's really, really big solar system, never mind the rest of the universe. As it happens, uh, the technologies for designing and building space reactors would also unlock sort of the next generation earthbound applications. That's a, that's a place where the phrase moonshot actually makes sense for a government program. And I do want to talk more about space travel in, in future episodes. I mean, what's not to love about that? But to connect the far off with the down to earth, let me end by pointing out that rocket ships get into space by burning, you know, pause, hydrocarbons, lots of them. Elon Musk's Falcon 9 rocket burns kerosene, boys and girls, not unobtainium. And the next generation engine will burn what amounts to liquefied natural gas. So <laughs> circling back to where we started about materials and inflation, SpaceX has recently announced price increases for its launches because of commodity inflation. So there you have it. Uh, you can escape Earth's gravity with enough energy and hydrocarbons for now, but you just can't escape energy realities. So on that note, until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off on another episode of The Last Optimist. <laughs>